Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and on this podcast, Paul and I will be discussing the big stories of the week that have appeared on Paul's website, thisiscommonsense.org. Paul's been writing there since 1999. This is the week, the third week of April 2021. Policy futility is a bad thing. Recognizing it is good. So what is policy futility? Well, if you look under A in the dictionary, it would be under Afghanistan. And uh, that was my conclusion to Monday's piece, Afghan angst, angst. And, uh, you know, Afghanistan, it's a war, you know, I'm pretty much a dove pretty critical of U.S. foreign policy. I think getting involved in Iraq was just the dumbest, just, just, uh, you know, hard to think of a a stupider move politically, militarily, every every way imaginable in history, in all of human history. Uh, and, And so many of our different interventions and so on. Afghanistan's different in the sense that we were attacked. 3,000 people were killed on 9-11. Nobody really disputes that it was Al-Qaeda that did it and uh, Osama bin Laden. And, you know, he took credit and so on. He was being protected and kind of housed with the Taliban. Uh, not a really friendly, happy-go-lucky uh, bunch of people. Uh, the Taliban being kind of Muslim fundamentalist Nazi-like folks. And Nazi-like is probably not the right word, but just uh, just kind of bringing back the cut off their hand and shoot them in the street and whip them and kill them. And, you know, just not, <clears throat> not my cup of tea. You know, we all, we all have our different preferences. Mine is not that. Uh, but anyway, Afghanistan is a place where I think we had a, under just war theory, a right to respond to that attack, to remove that threat. Um, But once you do that, you know, this is the graveyard of empires for a reason. It's, it's, is it a country or a bunch of tribes who live on this thing that you drew on the map? And, and it's, it's just, we've been there 20 years. And nobody has a plan that isn't laughable to get to a point where we could leave, where we could say, oh, yes, they've embraced liberal democracy. It's a pluralistic society. Uh, I mean, even, even far short of that, that it's a held together something of a society that might, you know, be a free country or a democratic, semi-free, sometimes uh, it, it, it's just, there's no, there's no solution. It's futile. Uh, and, and both futile with the D and futile, uh, which is what I meant to say. And, and, uh, so, you know, this is Joe Biden recognized it. Trump tweeted that he great to, way to go, Joe, except I wish you would have, uh, you know, something he didn't tweet it because he can't tweet it. I forgot what world, world we're living in. But uh, 
basically Trump kind of took him to task for pushing beyond the May 1st deadline. And it is worthwhile to recognize that, although I have to say, my suspicion is that Trump would not have been out on May 1 had he been reelected. And that we ought not to just, you know, take it to the bank that Mr. Biden is going to have us out by September 11th, which I would agree is just not the date I would have picked. Uh, but, but anyway, May 1 sounds like a good date for me. Um, now, one of the things that people are going to carp on, because everyone's going to sympathize, including me, is that this is going to be terrible for women in Afghanistan. And of course, that's an argument for staying. It's also an argument for invading about half the world and holding them, you know, occupying them and holding them at gunpoint to, you know, treat women better and a worthy goal, but uh, don't think that's the way to get there. And, um, and then I think the other thing is, well, it's going to just, you know, go back to what it was. And the truth is, we would have been better off to have left right after the Taliban was knocked out. And that happened fairly quickly. And just send the message that we'll be back. If you, if you attack us, we have no choice but to be back. And of course, you know, I wish our foreign policy and our, our domestic policies were always looking for ways to not be obnoxious to people overseas. Uh, and there are times that we are. And then, of course, there are times that we're not, uh, and people elsewhere are obnoxious. And then, you know, there are disagreements about who's really obnoxious, and it may be hard to tell, but if they blow up and kill a bunch of innocent people, I'm kind of thinking that didn't justify their position, that's for sure. So um, we had every right to go to Afghanistan. It's just dumb to stay there. And I, I saw something today where someone was talking about it. It hurts. It was an article where someone was saying it hurts us because we don't have that as a base of operations and all kind of, you know, and and I'm no military expert or strategist or anything else. But as as somebody who doesn't know anything uh, but reads these these articles by people who, who claim to and sometimes do, uh, it just strikes me that being someplace year after year where you're an occupying force is a terrible optic, just a terrible optic. And there are, you know, the people who work in the military, they get paid, they, you know, they take their chances and everything. They signed up voluntarily for the deal. But just like are your employees in some business or people you're working with in any social or civic endeavor, they're people. And I just don't think we want to create a kind of a job core of people who are occupiers and people who are living places where they're worried about being blown up and stuff. And, you know, I've always been a little bit concerned about bases everywhere and, and uh, the alliances and, and troops in different places. And sometimes we have problems in places like South Korea or, or Japan or Germany. Soldiers do something bad or somebody said they did, but they didn't really and whatever. There's gonna be problems. Not like in Afghanistan, not like in Iraq. It's pretty easy to tell when you are liberators and when you are occupiers. 
And let's not be stupid. I know, I know we, we want to call it the Defense Department, and we, we soon will be calling it the Peacekeeping Department, but it's war. And when you send soldiers places, you've got to, you know, we, we have to be awake, drink some coffee. These are people's children. These are people's parents, you know, and, and Afghanistan, get out. And if they, you know, if they become a threat again, it was not that difficult to go in and take out the Taliban. And in the scheme of, of things, I wouldn't have to do it with a couple of buddies on a weekend, but, but it, it wasn't that difficult compared to a lot of the things the U.S. military has been asked to do. And of course, we have the Northern Alliance that you know, did the work for us, uh, but we helped. And our military might can be used in that way. Our might at nation building, and I, this isn't like, oh, Paul, how'd you stumble on this brilliant truth? Everybody knows this. Every, just about every American knows this. Nation building doesn't work. At least it never has in all the times it's been tried. So anyway, uh, hats off to uh, Biden for getting out if he does. And uh, I, I took McConnell to task a little bit. Um, and I often do, you know, when he's right, he's right. And then there are all the other times. Um, but, uh, but McConnell hit on basically that, that uh, you know, we're helping our uh, adversaries, he said. Apparently, we're, we're to help our adversaries ring in the anniversary of 9-11 attacks by gift wrapping the country and handing it right back to them. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of think about what we're doing, because basically we have cut a deal. This was Obama's idea. We've cut a deal with the Taliban. We've brought them through negotiations into the government. They're now negotiating with the Afghan government. But at first they, you know, it was just with the U.S. And, uh, negotiating what they're going to do and not blow us up and that we're going to get out at a certain timetable. That was the May 1, September 11th stuff. And, um, and so, uh, oh, I'm losing my train of thought as to. Uh... Well, you were talking about the deal uh, that oh, oh. Barack Obama made. And I'm curious about it because I've forgotten what the deal was. Well, he just, it was Obama who basically began trying to negotiate with the Taliban to get them involved in the government and bring them in, realizing that they control at different times 40% or 60%. Huge swaths of, of Afghanistan are under Taliban control and not just rocks and, and dirt, but people too. And, and of course, they've taken over major cities at different times militarily. And, and so, you know, Obama making that move, as ludicrous as it is that you negotiate with them, and, and I don't think I would have. I think I would have said, I'm getting out of here and we will do whatever we can to help whoever wants to, you know, try to protect themselves, uh, maybe. And, and, you know, you, you, there are different things you could do, but it seems to me that you can't stay forever because they live there and you haven't changed. If you could somehow change, you know, you, you drop some leaflets and everyone goes, oh, this is the answer. And we're kicking the Taliban out. 
Well, the truth is then all you needed was the leaflets. We, we're not going to militarily go in and change everybody's mind. So it, it, it seems to me that um, what Obama was doing, as ludicrous as it sounds on the face of it, was not so ludicrous. And that the, really the only alternative, well, two alternatives. One is to get out without negotiating with the Taliban, which is, I think, what I would have chosen. Uh, I know, actually, that's what I would have chosen, right or wrong. And, uh, and then the, the other thing you could do is stay and stay and stay and stay. And that's, that's my whole point, that the easiest thing for any president, for any Congress, and anytime I think about Congress, I think of the, the guy singing on the steps of the Capitol uh, after 9-11, singing God Bless America, because as much as it's moving to hear that song, those guys... Uh, that's where they want to be. They just want to be part of the power structure. They want to be the in, the in crowd. And, um, and they didn't make it in Hollywood for obvious reasons. I wanted to mention just how long um, our experience with Afghanistan is. Because I know 20 years for the United States of America, but you know our cultural roots politically are with Britain. And the beginning of Sherlock Holmes stories began with a discussion of Watson's adventures in Afghanistan. And he had just come back from the war. And one of my favorite passages from Herbert Spencer is an essay called Patriotism, in which he offended a British military man by saying he didn't care who lives or dies in the service of fighting the Afghan war. Uh, one of the great passages from a from a radical libertarian and uh and so they had experience 120 140 years ago with afghanistan and it was a problem then and well, it's you, a problem now look look what happened with the, the soviet union um i'm not suggesting that afghanistan you know destroyed the soviet union which of course would be even more reason to kind of you know clap the mujahideen but uh uh but uh the truth is it didn't help matters and it was a huge divisive factor in it created tremendous resistance to the soviet government among the people and uh, so it you know did Afghanistan has played a tremendous role, but mainly in letting great powers screw up themselves. Right. And, and if we can get out, all the better. But, but uh, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that I, I guess the, um, uh, I, I guess my point before was just, no one wants to be the person who left. If you can just kick the can down the road. And that's, I got, I got lost on the, uh, on the analogy of them on the steps singing, you know, God bless America, but they, they, everyone wants to do what's going to keep them in power. And the easiest thing to do is kick the can down the road and not because Biden, he pulls out and then the Taliban does come back and there are going to be stories of look at the terrible things they're doing. And somehow like it's, it's his fault that other people are doing terrible things in countries that he does. He no longer has troops occupying. Um, we either want to be occupiers or we don't. And, it, and I just point out that it, it, it is obviously difficult because it's against their political self-interest. And, and we can poo-poo, you know, oh, sure, they're going to do the right thing, you know, some of the time. 
Not if it's against their personal self-interest. Uh, not unless you and I, the, uh, the mass audience listening here, decide that we're, we're going to hold them accountable. And then it is possible that we could make it to where it was in their interest to do things that they had previously thought was not in their interest. Right now, we don't, we don't, we don't really figure in the equation very much. Yeah, there's a strange dialectic going on in the background here uh, because politicians, like you say, have these incentives. But we should ask, what are the incentives of the Pentagon? Because the Pentagon knows that this is not a success. And yet in the Pentagon, you will find generals pushing for continued presence in Afghanistan, just as in the Pentagon, there is strong support for two more wars, at least. There's strong support for an attack upon Iran and strong support for Syria. Now, Iran is the country that the Republicans want to conquer, and Syria is the country that the Democrats want to conquer. Both of these are horrible, horrible ideas. Worse than Iraq, I think. I think Iraq was a cakewalk compared to going into Iran. Well, uh, Iraq has created all the, all the conditions for, you know, for, for Syria to implode. I know it's largely blamed on, on climate change. We actually did a, a can't remember whether I did a column at Town Hall or commentary at Common Sense. Or, probably did or, both. Probably did both. But it, it was argued that the Syrian civil war and all those problems were caused by climate change. And it's not a completely erroneous argument in the sense that you did have drought in Syria. Now, there's not evidence that you wouldn't have had it except for science reared its head and said climate change and you know i mean in other words it's no one's ever going to know whether there would have been a drought anyway there wouldn't have been it was caused by man-made you know fossil fuels uh but what's really behind the syrian civil war because you know during the same time as i pointed out in that commentary it now jumps in my head <laughs> california had a really big drought and there was no civil war in California. So if it was caused by drought, you'd have civil wars where there were droughts. Something else was going on in Syria. It was an incredibly repressive regime. And what's sadly, tragically interesting is that in many ways, if you are a Christian or an Alawite Muslim uh, or any other sect other than, I don't know whether it would be Shia or, or uh, Sunni or both, uh, maybe they get along there. But basically in, in Syria, a lot of folks uh, are somewhat okay with Assad because he has been protective of the Christian minority there uh, and other religious minorities because he's part of a religious minority. It's Muslim, but it's, it's uh, I think, considered not really Muslim by other Muslims. Yeah, well, it's, it's a very distant sect in Muslim Islam. Yeah, it's uh, the Alawites. And, uh, and yeah, it's not just the Christians, it's the Jews. And it's yeah. not just the Jews, it's the Yazidi. So we have three important groups that I think they really are endangered without the Alawites being in charge of the military. Um, you know, it's kind of weird, though. You mentioned uh, nation building doesn't work. Well, I think there's two two examples in American history where it did work, or three examples. 
two of them are Japan and, and Germany. However, I think we should, I think that's one of the reasons Americans have gotten completely crazy on the subject of a possible uh, uh, nation building is that it's, it is hard to build a, a nation uh, in an area that you don't understand. And we had some better understanding of Germany and uh, Japan. And we also completely conquered them. And I defy you to conquer uh, a Muslim territory. I just defy you to do it. I don't think it's going to be possible. Uh, and part of the deal here is that I think the only the only way to conquer these people is the worst possible way to conquer them. And it's something they used to say all the time, the, the, the horrific phrase, a Carthaginian peace. Right. And I think pounding the salt into the uh, into the soil and so on. Yeah. Just kill you kill them all, kill them all, and then destroy well, the place. And that's that's not that's something Americans don't do. Here's the right? other thing. Right. Well, yeah, there's there. <laughs> the other thing is, I think, and I, sometimes I joke with people that it's amazing how quickly the Japanese and German people took to peace, being such warlike people. And you can argue, I'm, I'm being facetious in terms of calling them warlike people, but people, you know, other folks might argue, well, look, they did this throughout history and they were very warlike. Um, my point is, just like I don't think you and I are responsible for every terrible thing that our country has done, and, it, and among a lot of wonderful things, and a great level of freedom, we have done some terrible things throughout history. We, as in the U.S. government. Uh, we, as in not, not we. And that's the point. It's not really we, and it's not really the German people. The German people didn't say, yes, we want to conquer, you know, most of Europe. We want to fight wars everywhere. That's what we're looking to do. No, that's not what they said. And I think, I think we understand the German people a lot better than we understand the Japanese people, just because the culture is much more similar. I mean, the, the number one ethnic uh, uh, population in the United States, and I think this is true, it's certainly true among, you know, white folks, but, um, but I think it's true overall is German. Uh, so, so, you know, we certainly had a little bit, you know, a little bit, we, we didn't have to, we didn't have to do quite the studying to, to figure them out. But really, in both cases, they were industrial societies. So it wasn't as if we had to take a feudal, feudal, uh, like Afghanistan is to a degree, um, and and you know build that up while we're and create all the social structures and other things that that you know societies need to be cohesive and peaceful and and productive and so on. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's easy to see that. And, it, and I could argue you didn't have to nation build, you just had to kind of nation redirect. Um, but it's, go ahead. I was just going to say that, I mean, they got Hiroshima, not Hiroshima, uh, the, the Emperor of Japan to collaborate with the American occupation. And that was key. I mean, yeah. MacArthur was yeah. genius, right? And in, in the Western Front, Hitler was out of the picture. And it was a complete conquest. The Nazis right. were defeated. Right. 
and and also the the Japanese army was defeated, and there was really no question about that. The next step would have been the slaughter of lots of civilians. I mean, the invasion of Japan would have been horrific. So uh, they each sort of you know they, they could go back to being cooperative societies because Germans and Japanese both were cooperative people. They're they're people who work together well, and that's the most important thing in a society is can you work together well. And so those nations could be rebuilt pretty well, I think. And they did a fairly decent job in both cases. Uh, but the idea that we can do that in Afghanistan, which has no history of co cooperating well, or a place like Somalia, or I just don't believe that these other places are good. Now, Iran is a place where they can cooperate well, but they have, I think that the uh, Islam, uh, Islamic element is going to be too big a hurdle for Americans to redirect away from the, uh, the Khomeini regimes and so forth. Well, you, you certainly, you know, the maturity in Iran from, from what I can gather is pro-democratic. Every time that they have elections and pro-democratic candidates are allowed to run, you know, we pointed out in previous podcasts that uh, in Hong Kong, one of the reasons China clamped down was that the election in December for these local, little local things, all of a sudden pro-democracy candidates got in the races and won 87% of the seats. That sent a message that this is what the people want. Well, every time the people in Iran have been able to send a message and elect people and, and they've got the Ayatollah and the, you know, the, the uh, religious folks dictating who can run or can't run and so on. But anytime they've had a choice, the pro-democracy candidates are winning and, and the pro-human rights and so on. And so it's, but there's a, a, a lot of firepower and, and threats and, and violence on the religious side. And it's a sizable minority. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, it's a very tough situation and, and uh, people may remember the, the green fingers of the woman uh, who was shot dead uh, and, and by other people showing after they voted, they had uh, their fingers, I think were marked in green and, and, uh, or maybe that was just a symbol in the, in the protest afterwards, but basically huge opposition to the government in Iran and, and uh, huge support for democracy. And it is a fundamentally, I think, different place than Iraq. And I, I don't believe some places, oh, they're just not ready for democracy. That's not the point. They're not prepared to hold it against the enemies of democracy. And that's the problem in some of these places. It's not a slap at these people or somehow they don't deserve to be free. They absolutely deserve it they're just not likely to be able to hold it because they don't have the social institutions and other institutions that will, that will help hold it together in the same way as in the United States. Why is our thing so scary? And we should go to our, our second script uh, of the week on Tuesday, uh, which was media corrections. And, uh, and, you know, one of the problems with our media is, um, and when you say that, you're talking about a zillion different outlets, but I'm pretty much talking about the most powerful ones. Um, and I think, you know, you could separate out Fox, 
uh, or some people, you know, separate out the Wall Street Journal or National Review or whoever you want to name on the on the conservative side. But for the most part, I think they're they're falling for a lot. I mean, they're 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 partisan media too, in a sense. Um, and you may agree with the partisanship of it more uh, than you do other other partisan media, but it's still partisan media. And and uh, on Tuesday we talked about three stories that all come together and basically send a, a terrible message and then both send that message in terms of sending the wrong, incorrect, dishonest message to the public, but also sending a message that our, you know, Thomas Jefferson said it was more important to have a free press than have a free government, because if you didn't have the free press, you couldn't keep a free government. And if you had a free press, you could get a free government. And we have a free press and it sure doesn't help in any way, shape or form, it seems like in getting more freedom and getting an honest discussion. I mean, I, I always harp on, we're not in the discussion. And I think so much of that is the media's attitude. And the media has an attitude of, we are sheeple who they need to browbeat into thinking the right way. And so if that's your attitude, well, no wonder we're not getting good information. I mean, it's too dangerous for you guys to give us good information. And let me, let me uh, just talk about the three stories. The, the first one is the uh, kind of gotcha video journalism of Project Veritas. And uh, as we, we've mentioned them before, uh, uh, James O'Keefe heads the, the organization. They had one, I think, really serious misstep where they were trying to sell a, a phony story to the Washington Post, in essence, to, to prove that the Post would take a phony story that, you know, that, that uh, was along their narrative, and then they could embarrass the Post. Well, the, the problem is when you're putting phony stories in the newspaper, that's not a good thing to do. Whether, whether you're trying to embarrass somebody or not, it just seemed to not be well thought out. Other than that, they've taken down Acorn. They've they've shown a lot of outrageous corruption, outrageous things said on video. You just can't believe. And of course, it's always reported in the in the uh, uh, mainstream media. Uh, the fake news. That's the fake news that that Donald Trump calls the fake news instead of the other fake news. Uh, but. Um, in these videos, it's they always are talking about they were edited and this and that. Unless you can argue against what's presented, every video you've ever seen has been edited. Um, you know, clipping off the first part where you were taking pictures of, you know, where you turn the camera on and it was facing the cement ground. Uh, nobody presents that as part of their video. And so they have no argument against them, but they just attack him anyway. He's talking to the technical director, who I think is right below the CNN, you know, director. Uh, and, and so he's talking about basically that their whole focus was to get Donald Trump out of office. And it's why people like me often talk about the media as the Democrats super PAC. Uh, now, I'm not looking to regulate the media. I'm not looking to regulate people's speech. But CNN has just been outrageous in blocking stories that they thought might hurt the Democrats, in running stories that turn out not to be true, that hurt the Republicans. 
and uh, and it's it's despicable. Um, but it was what was interesting is it came out just as um, we got news that the Russian bounty story. This was not really believed by the intelligence agencies. Now this was this was done during the campaign. Uh, came out, it was big news. Tell New York Times story. Intelligence agencies say. Uh, you know, they couldn't name them, of course, they had to stay off the record, but, you know, uh, and, and I, I know sometimes people want to dismiss stuff, and I don't believe anything that's off the record. Well, there's just too much good information that has been important throughout history that's off the record that you're not going to get if someone has to lose their job in the morning. And so I don't go there. I'm not willing to say, no, I don't believe anything that but that's why you have to have a certain amount of trust in the media and there's none of it. And there shouldn't be any trust because they're not trustworthy. So um, anyway, but this was, this was off the record intelligence reports. It was just echoed throughout the media and the whole, the, the whole point of it, the, the headline was, you know, Russian secretly offering, you know, bounties to kill Americans and uh, Trump administration considering for months what to do about it. Well, it turns out they weren't considering for months what to do about it. That's just a bold-faced lie because they did, the intelligence agency said, no, there's a low to moderate confidence. Let me, let me just clue you in on what that means. It means we don't believe it. It means we have no reason to believe it. And they, they hear a zillion different things in the chatter but some of it you believe and some of you don't. They did not believe this. It was splashed all over the media. It was splashed all over the media as if it was gospel truth. And that's a big, big problem. And of course, then right on the tail of that, we find out that the officer uh, Sicknick, who was killed, well, I was just about to say, was killed in the Capitol riot on January 6th. That's the police officer who was killed. But the medical examiner in Washington, D.C. Now, the New York Times was also the, the people who brought us that. The first people to say this person has been killed in the riot. He left after that day, he went to the hospital, and he died from his injuries. And of course, if someone is injured in a riot and they had said that he had had his head smashed by a, a you know, a, a fire extinguisher, which is kind of a heavy metal thing to have your head smashed with and, you know, went home later that day and then went to the hospital because that could easily happen. And the people who had that fire extinguisher would be guilty of murder and should pay by going to away to prison for the rest of their life. Um, I mean, it's just a horrible crime, except it didn't happen. He had no, in the autopsy, no abrasions on his skin, no, no, no physical trauma injury whatsoever. There was later a story that, that there was some sort of bear repellent or, or some sort of terrible chemical thing that, that, no sign of it whatsoever in the autopsy. He had uh, what appeared to be a couple of strokes in rapid succession. 
and and died from it. It's a horrible thing. And of course, being it, it doesn't somehow make attacking and smashing out windows, you know, in the Capitol, it doesn't make that okay. And uh, you know, so it's not it's not somehow oh well then then the, that was really nice of them or that the fact that he was involved in that crazy horrible riot didn't have some impact that triggered something, you know, we don't know everything that happens in someone's body. So the point here is not that somehow, you know, this justifies anything that the rioters did. Um, but this tells us something about the media and we hear about confirmation bias and people believe this or they believe this. This is confirmation bias. And it, the truth is it's not because this is narrative bias. This is bias that comes at, this isn't, hey, I've heard other things and this is kind of the way I believe. This is a full-fledged, here's my ideology and I'm slapping it on everything that comes in and spinning it up nicely and feeding it back to you. And um, this, is, this is not the news at the end of this. I, I said, uh, that's the news, question mark? Well, the answer is no, it's not the news. This is a sad, a sad propaganda parade just day after day, day after day. And it's, it's a huge problem because information is power. All the, it'll set us free. All those things are true. And we're getting it cut off. We don't get it from the media. We're not getting it on social media. And if anyone wants to say anything outside the lines, they're being cut off in social media. And, and look, let, let's just stipulate nine out of 10 things said outside the lines are crap. A few of them occasionally will be dangerous. Truth is, I'd rather somebody say those so you could say, hey, look, that guy's dangerous. <laughs> it's good to know. But society will grind to a halt and move at glacial pace if we don't get that one out of 10 that's outside the lines. In other words, if you think you can, you know, just say we're just going to control everything and not and not allow a robust debate, if we all already know everything, there's no reason to to discuss it anyway. We just listen to the experts and they'll tell us exactly what to do and don't mouth off. We've chosen a different societal makeup, at least, or so I thought. And, and uh, anyway, this is Tuesday's um, media corrections. We have to find a way to create them, uh, to correct the media. And a lot of it is going to be like any great change, creating the media and and you know it's it's kind of one of the promises of social media and the internet and phones with with good cameras and video is that it's easier to create media these days but we're 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 not catching up we need we need some uh, some boosters i think to be able to compete with a a uh, a stagnant and uh, controlled and spun uh, information system well, you probably can guess my reaction. Uh, this is a, you said you, you didn't want to have any regulation of the media. Well, I want to have regulation of the 
regulators of the media and those that's the CIA and similar organizations. It all, I think it all comes from the corruption of the CIA. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt of that from operation mockingbird on this is, this is, this is what our government spy people have been doing and it's disinformation. And you mentioned that story that was just made out of the whole, somebody made it out of the whole cloth. They invented the story of the fire hydrant and, uh, that's the kind of thing that the CIA has been doing in other realms. And they do that because they think it's a national security, but they determine the national security. Congress doesn't determine what that is. It's not even the president. This is, this is a, this is a rogue agency. No, we, we, uh, and, and it constantly seems to escape, you know, with the, the church commission, other things that found, Oh my goodness, they're going way outside the lines. Um, the whole, uh, I can't remember now. Was it Section Two Thirty or no? I'm I'm getting that confused with the, the one on social media. But the section of uh, the Patriot Act that they claim justified scooping up everybody's information and violating everybody's Fourth Amendment rights in a massive way without any even pretend justification. Um, that was never in the law. That was something that they just stretched the law out of all proportion to do. And of course, there's a story, and right before we started this, that I, I didn't get a chance to get all the way through. But supposedly, the post office, which half the time pretends is a private organization, but the post office's inspector's office or something is doing some sort of, I shouldn't have even said it because I hadn't read the whole article, I don't know at all. We'll be talking about it, I'm sure, in the future. But there's some article about some some police organization within the post office that's not not just snooping on mail, which of course certain things are photographed and there's all kinds of stuff that goes on. I mean, it's in public, I guess. But they are snooping on social media. And what by what right they are have any operation that's you know, they're running billions of dollar deficits. What are they spending money? investigating our social media use. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of, of uh, problems with secrecy and people run amok. And look at the FISA court. Oh, is it really so surprising that they were being lied to and nobody really seemed to catch it because there's nobody on the other side because it's all done in secret. We still don't know a lot of things about this court. It, it, you go back to the drone strikes. You know, look, we, we want our people to survive and live and the ability to kill terrorists with a drone instead of having to send troops different places makes a lot of sense. Unless you don't have any real legal definition of terrorist, unless you don't have any legal checks to make sure that you're just not murdering people anytime you feel like it. And, and I'm not suggesting that that's what they've been doing, but Anytime you don't have controls, well, then maybe, well, we thought he was a bad guy. Someone told us he was a bad guy and he, well, they told that because they wanted him killed or, or you're killing American citizens. You know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Alakwi, uh, I can't think of his, his uh, well, uh, oh, I can't think of his name, uh, but it's uh, Anwar Alaki. He, he was a, Propagandist, American citizen, propagandist for Al-Qaeda. Never convicted of anything, charged with anything in U.S. court. 
but he's in with the terrorists and there's not much argument about that. Well, they take him out in a drone strike, but then later they take out his son with a drone strike. This is both Obama. And then when Trump comes into office, Trump takes out his daughter, also an American citizen, with a drone strike. Maybe they're all justified. I don't think so. I don't think so, but maybe I'm wrong and they are all justified. I'm sure when we review them and people look at them in the light of day, oh, but they're not ever gonna look at them in the light of day. They're not reviewed at all. And so it's just, you, you cannot allow government tremendous powers in secret that are never reviewed. You just, if you do that, are you really going to be surprised if you ever pull up the blinders and look that it's going to be ugly, ugly, ugly? I mean, it, it, all you have to do is read two seconds of history. Just pick any century. It's the same history. You cannot allow people to do that. And um, anyway. There is no justification for any of that. By old ideas of just war theory and by any old ideas of diplomacy, America is a rogue nation that basically declares the whole world its illegal playing ground to kill people. That's that's an amazingly brazen and horrific policy. I don't see how anyone could ever have justified it. And there's no declaration of war even. Who are they declaring war on when they bomb somebody in Yemen? It makes no sense. Whatever you're doing, yeah, and we can say it makes no sense. I, and I'm not I'm not arguing with you because I think you're right. But come on, make the case then. It's a little bit like some of the, you know, there are, there were all kinds of irregularities with this last election. But if you come out and say there's fraud or there's all these irregularities, then speak to it. And, you know, from, from what I, from what I heard, there was never speaking to it. And, and it's the same thing here. I, I don't think you can justify the way you're running this program, I'm not sure you could justify having the program. Why don't you try? Because we live in a society in which we're the boss and you gotta come to us. I know you don't like it. You don't like that we're the boss, but you gotta come to us. Except they've kind of said, no, no, we don't have to come to you. We're just gonna get, we're gonna get leave your representatives who you can't stand and who don't represent you, they've given us just carte blanche. And that's, uh, you know, that that's a real problem. Well, we've only gotten two out of three pieces for this week. So, and we're a ways into the podcast. We are, we are. Well, let's, let's deal with something that is, um, is ripping our society apart. But this is a weird take on it, kind of, because uh, Wednesday, Pick Your Poison uh, is about, well, I asked to start out, are cigarettes containing menthol-flavored tobacco racist? And this is all... Uh, it's, it's so dumb. <laughs> you know, here's the stats. You know, more, you know, they, the, the Washington Post argued that Blacks are disproportionately killed through cancer and other harms of tobacco use by menthol cigarettes. And it's true. Now, you might ask, why are Black Americans being harmed more by menthol cigarettes than white Americans are? 
Well, because white Americans have chosen overwhelmingly, 71% of white Americans want, who smoke, want to kill themselves with non-flavored tobacco. On the other hand, 85% of black Americans who choose to smoke and want to kill themselves with tobacco, want to kill themselves with a menthol flavored variety. So the menthol flavored variety disproportionately kill blacks, just like the non-menthol variety cigarettes disproportionately kill whites. And I'm mad at the cigarettes, I'm mad at the smokers, but this is ridiculous. There is a petition, it's a, it's a process they have where you can officially petition the uh, FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to outlaw things, or maybe you can legalize things that way. I don't know, maybe we should check. Um, but they, there's a petition to ban menthol-flavored cigarettes. And, uh, and it's all predicated on that they disproportionately kill people of color. And really, Blacks here, not all people of color, because I don't know that Hispanics, you know, I'm not sure what they smoke. I, and really, I don't intend to ask. So, so I'm not going to be any help there. The funny thing about this, it's not funny at all, but the strange thing is that, you know, one of the commenters at the uh, Washington Post, it's funny because my wife always tells me what she's read in the comments. I never read the comments. She always does, but she gives me, you know, the best ones. And then I realized, boy, there's a lot of great stuff in these comments, but it's harder to, you know, you can't punch down and, you know, give some commenter a hard time. Um, usually, but here someone left a comment that just so, so easily pointed up the whole thing, banning a certain type of cigarettes, she says cigarettes, uh, because black people tend to favor them is stupid and patronizing. That's the two things it is. That's exactly right. Either have the courage of your convictions and ban all cigarettes, and then in parentheses, LOL, laughs out loud, because obviously that's a stupid thing to try to do, or leave this alone. And obviously the answer is to leave it alone, but and leave us alone in the process. But there's something else here that was interesting in this story to me. And that is that one of the people arguing against banning, you know, civil rights people were on both sides, but one of the civil rights movement people who was against banning was Reverend, Reverend uh, Al Sharpton. And there was a point made that he received money from R.J. Reynolds, which makes Newport's the best-selling menthol cigarette. And he acknowledged that he received money from them. Uh, said it had no effect on his, you know, the same as, as politicians do. And I think sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. But what's interesting to me is on something like this, where he wasn't in the bandit because it's disproportionately affecting black people. Uh, and, and increasingly, of course, there aren't black people and white people. There's all these people who are somewhere on that spectrum and we love them all. Um, but it, it's, um, anyway, now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> where was I headed with this? Well, something to do with Al Sharpton. Oh, oh. I am actually curious about what the hell you're talking about. Well, here, here's the whole thing. 
So he takes money in this instance, and we find out about it because he's not part of the critical race theory crowd. Or In other words, he's on the other side in this case. He's saying, don't ban it. And of course, one of the points he makes, which makes a lot of sense, is, yes, uh, you're, gonna, you're going to give the police another reason to engage our people. I mean, he just makes the point, this is, you can't put people in jail for this. This is going to be, and of course, we all remember probably Eric Gardner in New York, who was selling individual cigarettes. Cigarettes are so expensive in New York. People get cigarettes from somewhere else and, and go there and sell them on the street. Without the taxes. Without the taxes. And so police got him and they got him in a headlock. And he, he looked like he was breaking the law. But because of that stupid law on cigarettes and their crazy, insane taxes on cigarettes, the police put him in a chokehold. And because they shouldn't have put him in a chokehold, I think from their own policies and so on, he ended up dying. He was killed by that chokehold. So it's, you know, these things have consequences. And if you want, if you want to make everything illegal and hire police to enforce it, you're going to have problems, especially when you're policing it in a racially defined way so it's uh but what what i also thought was interesting about this is just that we found out about sharpton getting money and i suspect if he were on the other side he would have never been asked it would have never been looked into and we would know nothing about whether he's getting money or he's not getting money of course that was just one of his shakedown operations right well, I don't know that. I don't know that. But that's certainly alleged a lot of times that that in essence, they, you know, that's what the, they, that the whole industry is shaked out. Well, and, and let me just, <laughs> let me just let you in on something. If you end up not being Sharpton, but being in the Congress, <laughs> you're oftentimes it seems like that same, that same dynamic is there. And I thought one of the great things that uh, years, this is, this will date me. Uh, when Steve Forbes ran for president, what was that? 88? Not 88. It was uh, 96, maybe. 92 and 96? Didn't he run twice? He did run twice, but I think it was 2096. I don't think it, it was, was 96. Like, right. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Yes. But anyway, he talked about term limits and he talked about a flat tax. And one of the arguments he made is that both would be anti-corruption and that the flat tax would take away the ability of Congress to give all these different loopholes and stuff. And there are people doing all kinds of things for some little line in the tax code that wouldn't make any difference to you and I, but makes hundreds of millions of dollars of difference to them maybe. And there's any time the Congress takes up taxes, they've got a lot of people opening up their checkbook and writing a check. And so they play this same shakedown game in one way or another. Um, they have a lot of favors to give out and, and that's just kind of a barter economy. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, well, sure. That's, that's, that's how pressure, that's how pressure groups work. Right. I mean, one, one thing is a legal action on the part of Al Sharpton. If you don't pay me in my organization, then we're going to call you racist and we'll break you through the courts for not to, uh, abiding by the strictures of the EEOC. Isn't that what's called the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and, and similar organizations? Yeah, equal Employment, I think, Opportunity yeah. Commission. Yeah, and then similarly with all this tax stuff is, is that 
the politicians have power and they can with with a right. with a half a breath they can move from one favor to a disfavor. They can make a call to OSHA. They could come see how how your warehouse is if they're if you're violating any regulations. Yeah. You know, there's there's all kinds of things that they can do. And and real people who are involved, not real, not like other people aren't real people, but people who are really involved in business. I remember one time uh, talking about because we had reporters and term limits going after our, you know, that we had money and we're, we're doing things and what do they want? And I pointed out that to suggest that people are giving money to the term limits movement to have some special in to get goodies from Washington is absurd because they have a system right now that works like a charm for that. And the last thing they would wanna do is completely upend that system and have a bunch of people in that even if they could convince them to give them favors, could only be there for a short period of time and then they have to convince somebody else. So it's, it's um, anyway, there's a lot of that uh, that goes on. Right, and I think it was Tacitus who said that the uh... He explained it all with one sentence. The more the laws, the more corrupt the state. And that's yes. what we have here. That's, that's, that's the reason we don't want to always be increasing legislation is that we want to decrease corruption. But Americans so far don't have it in their heads to really get that this is a, a big deal. At least Democrats certainly don't understand and Republican politicians haven't been helping. Right, right. They, even when they understand in their speeches, they don't understand in their votes. Yeah. Uh, but generally a useless crowd. We'll talk about a more, I don't know if there's a more useless group of people than you know, most Republican politicians. You know, it's interesting that I remember uh, in 2006 when Democrats took over the, the Congress when Nancy Pelosi first became Speaker, um, nobody criticized the Republican Congress as harshly as my Republican friends. And the same has been true oftentimes that my Democratic friends, when there's been a Democratic Congress, have just been livid at how bad they are. Uh, and it tells you something when people are upset with the Congress, even, and, and they're engaged in politics, and they know it's their party's Congress, and they're terribly upset with it. It, uh, and, and it keeps happening, and it keeps happening both ways. It tells you you've got a, a very structural problem. Hey, we should, we should uh, I think, just quickly touch on the last two commentaries of the week, um, one of which, uh, Thursday's, the YouTubification of China. And uh, it's, it's a theme that we've talked about a lot, and it, it actually really combines two themes we've talked about a lot. And I hope that it's not a surprise combination because we, we have mentioned that they fit together like hand in glove. And what I'm talking about is big tech censorship and the overriding dangerous goal of the Chinese Communist Party, which is really Chinazis, not communists so much, uh, we had a comment on this, this uh, particular commentary from Tom Knapp, who's a regular commenter, who said, I kind of like Chinazis, and I, I, may be, oh, I may be overstating how he said it, but uh, <laughs> I kind of liked it at first, 
but enough already with the Chinazi. It's too much or something. And I actually spent uh, like five paragraphs responding to him because I think it's so important that I think that I think, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is not communist. It's much more Nazi-like. And I think that's important. And I think it's important that we define who they are because there's so much misinformation and, and they're very good at it. And people who are gonna wanna do business with a country that has 1.4 billion customers uh, are gonna be given all the reasons why and so on. That disinformation is, you know, is a problem. They're always going to be a Prescott Bush willing to do business with the Nazis, just as there are many big corporations and business interests in America who want to do business with the Chinese government and the Chinese operations, even if it means doing horrible things to Americans at the same time. No, that's, that is the problem is that it, I know that if the American public is not engaged, that everyone who speaks to a government official is going to be wanting to do business in China. And those government officials are used to talking to people who want to do business and want to, you know, in other words, the whole conversation is going to be how to facilitate doing business with China. And that's not what I want that conversation to be. Um, but what's interesting is that they, the Chinese are very good at misinformation at saying ridiculous things and just sticking with them and saying them again and again and getting useful idiots to go along with those things. And that's, that's helped by our own tech, big tech censorship. And there is a channel, uh, China Uncensored. Uh, and I kind of like this guy. He's, he's got, I've, I've referred to him as daddish, uh, you know, bad dad jokes and stuff like that. Uh, bad puns, and but he talks about the latest news. He does probably uh, five, six, seven videos a week. I mean, there are a lot of videos coming out, um, but they're very informative. I kind of like his sense of humor, but he has been talking about the problem of being uh, demonetized on YouTube, YouTube hiding videos, taking down videos, all, all kinds of problems. And he says that it seems to be related to him showing bad actions by the CCP. And you can see where, you know, you can see where it could be on the edge where he's showing a video that's showing them doing bad things like beating people up and so on. And so they have to put a warning on it or something. And, and boy, that's too bad. But he goes through one thing after another. And if you go to uh, the YouTubeification of China uh, at thisiscommonsense.org, um, there's a link to his video and you can watch it. It's probably seven, eight, 10 minutes. Uh, but it, it's very interesting because he goes through some of the different videos. And it's just obvious that they're either getting pushback from China, from the CCP and, and the Chinese regime has hired millions of people to do pushback on social media. And so, you know, they, they may have gotten half a million complaints uh, about his YouTube video, but for whatever reason, his getting the truth out through YouTube is incredibly difficult. 
and far more difficult than it should be. His videos, if you watch one, you'll realize there's nothing here that should be blocked, that should be stopped. You can agree or you can disagree, but it's totally ridiculous. And again, we see our media, you know, the, on the, the, the one commentary with all these phony stories and that feed their own narrative, that no one's surprised that that's the way their mistakes are adding up. We see a totalitarian Nazi-like power clamping down on freedom, putting millions of people in concentration camps and trying to shut people up about mentioning it. And when I say people, I'm not just talking about little, little folks like you and I, I'm talking about Australia. Um, Australia called for an investigation, you know, an independent investigation in the coronavirus and, and COVID-19 spreading throughout the world. And now all of a sudden they're embargoed. Uh, all kinds of goods are being uh, blocked in China. And, and they have done, well, there is so much at thisiscommonsense.org about what's happening in China and Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, Xinjiang region and the, and the Uyghurs, uh, organ harvesting, you name it. Go there, use the search function, put in China, uh, put in Hong Kong, put in Taiwan, you'll get a ton of information about what's happening. I wrote a piece called All the Tyranny in China short commentary, too short, because I could not fit all the tyranny in China. I did several after that saying, oh, I forgot this tyranny. Um, so anyway, there's a lot more information at thisiscommonsense.org. And then on Friday, we basically said, stop yanking our clocks and time around. And um, and of course, uh, interestingly, it was uh, Tricky Dick Nixon. Uh, he wasn't the first. Woodrow Wilson was the first who did daylight savings time during World War I, and then it was quickly changed after the war. Same thing happened during World War II. Uh, uh, Roosevelt did it. And I've heard all kinds of different justifications, but it seems the, the main one is to just have more waking hours that are in the, in the sunlight, as if we couldn't adjust our schedules the way we wanted to, but I guess in war, maybe you've got some, uh, some good reason for that. Maybe, maybe not, but people will probably go along. But Nixon did it during peacetime, kind of. I mean, it was during the Vietnam War, but it was, you know, that was a sideline war we were doing over And here. it was winding down too. It was really in re reaction to the uh, energy crisis. Yes, yes. Yeah, you forget about that embargo, that OPEC embargo and, and uh, but anyway. Or was that, was the OPEC embargo, was that, that was, was Nixon still in at that point? Or was Ford when they actually embarked? I don't know when the embargo came in. I just know that it was part of the wacky world of the 1970s, which we all, which was kind of formative for you and me, probably, because that's when we were teenagers, basically. And uh... well, I've been teenage, I've been a teenager again and again. So, but yeah, that was the first time I was a teenager. Okay. Okay. Very good. First decade I was a teenager. Um, but what's, what's interesting is, I, it, and I didn't realize it was so overwhelming, but people do not like this falling back and springing forward and so on. 
And so you would think you would just go to, you know, the, the regular time. And how would you tell that time? Well, the only real way it seems to me to set up when, how you do your time, when it's noon or midnight or one o'clock or six o'clock, is that at noon, the sun is right straight above you, right? I mean, that's how it works. And all over the world, at noon, you look up. And of course, it's noon in, in China. It's not going to be noon in the U.S. It's going to be midnight um, or somewhere about. But, but that's not how they're doing it. They want to do it to where it's daylight savings time year round. So that the moon will be straight up at one o'clock, I guess. You know, you're the sun. The 11 a.m. or the one sun. o'clock? The sun. The sun. Then, yeah, not the moon. Not the moon. Seems somehow wrong, but. Yeah, that's my position, is that it, it's just one of those many ways you, you call it cheating. It just, it just, it's just not wanting to stick to the natural thing. Now, we, we, you didn't mention, really, you didn't confess to the most obvious thing. There is cheating now because we have time zones, and every time zone, uh, standardizes it to a to a I guess to the middle of the time zone uh, where where the where right. the true noon is where the the solar noon. You're is. saying that that sun might be a little. Well, it changes. It's, it, it, it varies from place to place, <laughs> and and they did this in the 19th century because train schedules are all getting all messed up because you go from one place to another and no nothing made sense. So you had telegraphs. So so they so they so they had the ability to make sense of it all, getting uh, 24 time zones around the world, right? Right. I believe China right now has only one time zone. So that means that they have quite a, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's wow. the case. But I don't like the idea of just shifting time zones, as you put it, uh, one hour to the east. That just bothers, that bothers me. But Nixon's, Nixon's thing was that he wanted to have a year around, a year around uh, uh, daylight savings time. Oh, and he wanted the same thing that, and, and we should mention it, the, the bill is, uh, uh, Marco Rubio and and uh, who is the other person on the bill? I can't think of that at the moment. Where is that? Uh, oh, Patty Murray. Patty Murray. Yeah, my senator, who went in her first few years in in Congress, had the reputation for being the stupidest person in Washington D.C. Uh, but uh, but, but not, now I that was not her official documents though. No, but now she's been eclipsed so many times. That no one believes that anymore. Wasn't she the she was the the mom with tennis shoes or oh, something? Yeah. Wasn't that oh, yeah. how she started with some? It was a very kind of Washington State, or maybe it was the mom with Birkenstocks or something. But it was they uh, said tennis shoes, right? And this is the state that had the, our our best governor was was uh, was a woman who lived in a trailer. So uh, that, that's that's the uh, who was the, who was the governor though? Ruby something? Who was the was is is that the right name? I'm gonna. I'm. Who was your governor? She was a Democrat, I think. She was. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm trying to remember now. I can't remember her name. I have a book buyer. Uh, she because she became an an anti environmental. She became an enviro skeptic. Dixie Lee Ray, not Ruby, not Ruby, but uh, Dixie Lee Ray, and she was a character. Oh, she was a wonderful. She was a character. And I kind of liked her. I, oh, know, I liked her that, a lot. She's probably the only all her positions, but she's probably the only governor of a Washington state that I've ever cared for. Dan Evans was our was the big Republican before uh, her time. Yes, yeah, and he was famous around the around the nation. I think he they, had kind of that uh, the very clean, 
you know, Tim Penny-esque. That was the guy from Minnesota who kind of took lots of 80, 20 issues and, you know, uh, but, but I like Dixie Lee Ray was kind of a character. And, yeah. and I think, I think people, they want to feel like you're your own person. We've talked about this before, but I'll bring it up again and then we'll, we'll let people go back to the rest of their life. Actually, we're not holding you at uh, hostage, but, uh, but, um, <sighs> Now I'm going to forget what what I'm about to what what I was trying to say. Yeah, I don't know what you're saying about Dixie Lyrae, but I but we we liked her. Oh, uh, oh but oh, we didn't oh. like her enough to reelect her. Oh, the, did she didn't she get elected twice at a different time she ran or something? But no, here's here's what I was thinking about. We have talked before about what a mistake it was for Elizabeth Warren to have the beer, the little thing early in her campaign where she had the beer to show she was just like one of us. Dixie Lee Ray, I mean, she might've had a beer, I don't know, but if she was gonna have a beer, it was because she wanted to have a beer, not because she wanted you to think she was gonna have a beer just like you would. And it's, it's, it's why someone like a Daniel Patrick Mo Moynihan in New York did the average New Yorker, did they talk like Moyahan? Did the average person in New York think, not that he was the greatest guy in the world or anything, and he wasn't, but, uh, but, but did they like him because he was just like them? No, they liked him because he was just like him. And that's, you know, that, that's what I like about Dixie Lee Ray. That's what I like about certain folks. It's what I've said for years, for decades, actually, that I could vote for Ralph Nader because I have some respect for him, even though he's wrong about a majority of issues, I think. But on the issues he's wrong about, I don't think he'd cheat me, I'd be able to fight him on. And on the issues he's right about, he'd actually care about them and help, and I'd be able to help him get those enacted. And it's, a, it's about people who are real and who believe in things and we can work together and negotiate and figure things out what we have in Washington and people have said it's partisanship and it's, it's because they're so ideological. The problem in Washington is not clashing ideologies. It's clashing crooks. It's clashing self-interested snobs. And that's not, that's not as healthy clashing ideologies. In my experience in Washington, when you're fighting with people who believe in something, there's kind of mutual respect in the same way there is in, at the end of a football game where, you know, you were, you were trying to tackle the guy and smash him into the pavement, you know, into not the pavement, but the, the, the turf. And afterwards you got to respect in your shaking hands. And, and I think that's more apt to happen when, when the fight is ideal, ideological or on principle, really. Um, ideological, you know, kind of sounds like you're bringing an awful lot to the table, but, but when it's on principle, when it's about money, you got what you have in Washington today, which is, wait a second, I'm going to cut you because I had to have my cronies in the bill. No, I get to have more money for my cronies. So I just find it weird that uh, there's a policy, you know, the common policy of the United States, the uh, summertime daylight savings time, which jiggers with the uh, with the time. And 
nobody really likes it because we don't like going back and going forward. And the politician's answer is to make the jiggering normal rather than just go back to the more natural system. That's the part that I find so weird because I just find it just a silly policy. Even if it does some good, it still seems a silly policy because you should bear, be able to bear with. Right. I mean, you know, it's get advantage somebody. Well, you confess that you like what element for what has to be the silliest reason I've ever heard. Then I, I think people, you should confess to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's from time to time. I'm talking to people who are in Hong Kong or Taiwan and, and, uh, and when it's daylight savings time, and we jump ahead an hour, it's exactly 12 hours. So it's the exact same time, just night instead of day and that kind of thing. And so it's easy to remember. And otherwise I have to add an hour to it, which is, you know, that, that is such tough plus one is always such difficult arithmetic to do. But, uh, but there's, there's another aspect of this jump forward and fall back that I have to admit to, which is I don't mind falling back. It's like in the fall, and it never, it never quite has the payoff that I'm expecting. You know, I'm going to get a whole extra hour of sleep because it just never seems to work out. But looking forward to it, I'm always very happy about the fall, fall back part. I feel like I cheat the universe out of an hour. And then, of course, the next day you realize, no, nah, nah, I didn't really get away with that. But I don't remember. Did you quote that great old line about the uh, Indian blanket, the, the Indians? Uh, uh... The, the famous Indian line about the blanket? No. Where was that? Uh, the idea is it, somebody famous compared daylight savings time to white man's idea of, of cutting off the top part of the blanket and sewing it onto the bottom and thinking he has more blanket. <laughs> <laughs> I did not use that, but I've heard that. That's a, that is a good one. Yeah. Well, on that note, till next week, uh, and you can visit us at thisiscommonsense.org. Well, we're going to end the podcast right there, and I don't need to say anything more beyond this. Just like that. Yeah, there you go. We can cut it right now. Cut! Oh, before we go, let's uh, get a few things straight here. The full quotes for Tacitus of Herbert Spencer. Tacitus wrote... Corruptissima Republica Plurime Legis. The more numerous the laws, the greater the corruption of the state. I usually translate it just as, the more the laws, the more corrupt the state. But that's probably too poetic or too concise for what people really understand well. There's no need to translate Herbert Spencer. He wrote it in English in 1902 in the essay Patriotism in Facts and Comments. And he was talking about the Afghan War at that time. And he said, when men hire themselves out to shoot other men to order, asking nothing about the justice of their cause, I don't care if they are shot themselves. So we made a number of errors, of course, in our discussion, but I wasn't wrong to say that China has one time zone. And it is hard to say Anwar al-Awlaki, but I think I got it about right.